0: Yeah. Okay. Gateway, this is Steve Irish. Those of you who know Steve may know that Steve is married to Christy, which those of you who've met them know Steve clearly married above himself. So Steve, what else should we know about you?
1: So I guess probably the biggest notable thing is the four little kids that I have running around Okay. It was How fun. old are they? They are, oh gosh, now you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Eight, seven, six, and four? Okay. Yeah. It yeah. was more fun when I, had, when I was able to say I had four under five, but I guess now, it's, wow. now it doesn't sound quite as uh, crazy. No, it
0: sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> so what is your favorite thing about Christmas? We were
1: singing these, um, these Christmas hymns, and I think my favorite thing about Christmas is these, um, these songs that we sing. They're beautiful, but they also, a lot of them, do a very eloquent job of explaining the real importance of Christmas. And I find myself, when I hear them on the radio or I'm singing them in church, so I get a little choked up because it's just such an awesome thing that God came down and physically became present on the earth. And these are songs that everybody knows, and everybody knows the words to, and everybody can sing together, but they convey such like an incredible message. So I think that's my favorite thing.
0: Wow. That's a good setup. You're reading for us this morning from Luke chapter 1. And let's pay special attention to this this morning. We're going to be talking from this. And there are three wildly compelling traveling points that Luke has for us this morning from this reading that Steve's going to do for us. And don't snooze on Luke's introduction. So the first four verses that Steve will read for us are like an introduction to the whole biography of Jesus. So he's going to be reading... Uh, Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 25. And if we can, let's go
1: old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. All right, so this is Luke 1, 1 through 25. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments, and regulations blamelessly but they had no children because elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before god he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the lord and burn incense and when the time for burning incense came all the assembled worshipers were praying outside then an angel of the lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people.
0: Peace the Lord be with you. Okay, you may be seated. We're beginning a new series of messages today we're calling Audacious. The word audacious means first. According to Miriam's Dictionary, extremely bold or daring. Second, extremely original, highly daring. And I originally intended to call today's message Audacious Prayer because we're going to be talking about prayer. And I realized as I worked my way through this passage over the last couple of weeks that this is not really about audacious prayer. This is about audacious answer. So let's kick this off with prayer. Father, we come to you this morning helpless and believing, and we ask that you would speak. We come from various places, emotionally and spiritually and physically. We bring a variety of joys and needs, and you know each. And we honestly believe that you're ready to move, and we believe that we're not here today by accident. So we ask that your sovereign purposes would be served in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I said three traveling points from Dr. Luke. But three traveling points from Dr. Luke that I don't want you to miss. This will be quick, but these are critically important. And more important, I want to underscore this. These are not incidental points. These are not, oh, that's a neat observation from what Luke is saying. Luke intends these points in this story. Number one, this stuff really happened. Traveling point number one for you and I is this stuff really happened. I know most of you believe that or you wouldn't be here otherwise, but I also know that a few of you, like me, occasionally struggle mightily, honestly, with believing that. And I know that there are some of you that just have a difficult time overall dialing into the actual truth of these stories. But Dr. Luke wants to make sure that we know this stuff really, actually happened. So let's not miss the point. This is a concern for Luke. It matters, without question. He believes he's writing about actual events, and he's taken great pains to make sure that. He starts the letter off by saying, Look, I've investigated everything carefully. It matters to Luke that these events are actual history, that they actually happened. The difference between profoundly inspiring myth and actual history matters to Luke, and it seems that he knows the difference. As I've said before, and some of you have heard me say, our faith, Christianity, our religion, is not essentially a philosophy of life, although it is that. It's not essentially a code of behavior, although there is behavior that's prescribed for us. Our faith is essentially a declaration of an historical event that actually happened in history. Now, over the years, some have questioned the actual historicity of the stories surrounding Jesus' birth. After all, these stories, the birth stories, aren't included in every one of the biographies. Perhaps Mark and John, for instance, didn't believe the accounts some have suggested. And and the details of the incidences surrounding Jesus' birth that are described for us, they're more varied and they're more different from one another. Some would even say more contradictory than almost anywhere else in the Jesus story. Plus, there's just a lot of supernatural stuff here. And let's face it, that supernatural stuff is sometimes hard to believe. So I want to be honest. This is a little parenthesis this morning and aside. For me, this question of can I really believe this stuff always drives me back to the resurrection. We're talking about the birth of Jesus, but I want to tee off just for a second on the resurrection. Here's what I mean. There are real concrete, logical reasons to believe that the resurrection actually happened. We can't prove it, of course, but there is, in my opinion, more evidence for the resurrection than there is evidence against it. And my doubts always resolve themselves there because if the resurrection happened, then that opens the door for all of this stuff. So what is this evidence I speak of? I'm not going to spend long here. I do this about every other Easter. We go through just Why is it that we can actually believe the resurrection happened? But let me just give you three things. Number one, where did the idea of the resurrection come from? This was not their expectation, they didn't get this from the Old Testament. Nobody expected nobody. Secondly, where did the body go? You know, it was in the Jews and the Romans' intense interests to have the body, to keep the body where it was. And the first preaching about Jesus's resurrection happened in Jerusalem, where he had been killed. And they stood up in front of crowds of people and said, he's been resurrected. Now, if there was a body, the Romans and the Jews would have certainly said, no, 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 here. But that's not what they did. They all recognized that the body had gone somewhere. The Prevailing alternative theory is the theory that's actually believed still today by many, including Muslims. They believe in the what's called the resuscitation theory that that Jesus didn't actually die, that he was buried in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him, and he got up and walked out. And that's entirely possible. Of course, you have to know first of all that these Romans were experts in execution. They knew how to kill someone. It's what that detail of soldiers did. They killed people for a living. Secondly, he's buried behind a gigantic stone that's sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. So let's assume he could overcome all of that. A guy who limps in, bloodied, hand and feet, sword inside, limps into his followers. That's not exactly somebody who inspires a revolution. And the third thing is, what in the world do you make of the disciples? particularly these 11 men, they went out preaching all over the world, changed the world, most would say, if they were honest, preaching all over the world and died for their faith. Certainly, at some point, if this had been anything close to a myth, if they hadn't been absolutely certain, I mean so certain that resulted from them having seen something, if they had not been certain, that, certainly at some point one of them would have said, wait, 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 wait a minute. I think we made all of this up. So you can put down the rope or the cross or the sword or whatever it is. And if the resurrection is true, then all this other stuff is possible. It's perhaps even reasonable. This may be part of the reason the resurrection became so central in the thinking of the first followers. Paul said in one of his letters, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because all of history, the universe, reality hangs on that. If the resurrection is true, then reality is mind-blowing. And these folks certainly act like people who had had their minds blown. If the resurrection is true, then it's absolutely clear that we live within a reality that's far more expansive than we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. That means that chemistry and physics teachers, thank you, Allison, chemistry and physics teachers over the years have done an excellent job of explaining to us a small sliver of reality. But there's a vastness to what is that is far beyond what we have measured or experimented on. For example, there are literally beings that occupy a space beyond our space and time. And on rare occasion, these beings interact with our universe in perceivable ways. Saints of old called these beings angels. Angels. And that's just one example of the richness and vastness of reality. So traveling point number one, this stuff really happened. That means our world is amazing. That means anything is possible. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, how can we do this? How do I get out of this? What could possibly happen to change or or ever affect this? Or the next time you're thinking, I just give up. I mean, this is hopeless. In that instant, I want you to remind yourself that once there was a very old man who was praying in the temple, and an angel showed up. Well, you heard the rest of the story. Point number one, this stuff really happened. Really, actually. Point number two, traveling point number two from Dr. Luke, God answers prayer. Prayer. All right, we learned four things from Luke about this couple in like the third paragraph in that sets up the drama of the whole story. We learned, number one, that both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were from priestly families. That meant that was a big deal to these folks. And Zechariah himself was an active priest. Secondly, we learned that they were upright and deeply devout in all of their actions. Third, we learned that they were very old. And fourth, we learned that they are childless. So in our passage, Zechariah is chosen to serve at the temple. Let's explain that just a little bit because that's one of those kind of details that we can chase right past. Now, priestly divisions at this time in the ancient Near East in Israel, priestly divisions, the the priesthood was divided into various divisions, and those divisions were rotated through temple service on a predictable basis, often a couple of times a year. But the privilege of going into the holy place on a sacred day or on a holy day and burning incense while offering the ritual prayers prescribed. This was a one-man operation, and it wouldn't be unusual for a priest to serve in this capacity only once in his whole life. So this is an extraordinarily special moment for Zechariah as he enters into the temple. He's there on a holy day. He's going to burn incense, and he's going to offer prescribed Ritual, sacrificial prayers. He's burning incense. He's praying. There's a crowd outside in the temple courts. They're praying. And suddenly, Zechariah gets interrupted. So I want to read verses 11 through 14. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, I want to suggest to you he experienced this exactly the way all of us would. This is another one of those things. You know, the biographies of Jesus are are powerfully compelling, especially when you put them up side by side against other writings from the ancient world or even ancient Near Eastern writings. Because if they're making up this story, what you do is you say, the angel appeared on the right side of the altar, and Zechariah, being a holy and devout man, lifted his hands to God and shouted for joy at the presence of God. Instead, what we read is, Zechariah saw him and was startled and scared to death. But the angel said to him, look, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. And he'll be a joy and a delight to you, and and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He goes on to describe what will be the ministry of John, and what he's describing is a fulfillment of what Allison read for us from chapter 40 of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, speak to them. Look, Hey, there's a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And they had this suspicion that there would be some movement, maybe even some person, who would come before Messiah and would prepare the hearts of the people for Messiah. That was a growing belief in Israel at that point. They would even pray for that, for the one like Elijah to come, who would come in the the spirit and the power of Elijah. And this is exactly what the angel tells Zechariah is going to happen. Let's unpack that real quick. Certainly, The people out in the temple courts would have been praying at the same time. Of course, they would have been praying for their own needs and concerns. You know, I pray for Elijah at home. He's sick. I pray for Mary. I think she's got the flu. We don't even know what the flu is yet, but she's got it. I pray for David. He broke his leg, and we don't have modern medicine, so we don't know how to set it. So, Lord, help his leg to grow. But they're also praying On this holy day, ritually, they're praying for the Messiah to come. And they're praying for God's people to be prepared for Messiah. This is definitely what Zechariah would have been praying for. He's alone in the holy place, praying for God's glory, for the reputation of God's name to be expanded. He may have been praying against the rule of the Romans, for instance, and he was certainly praying for the coming of Messiah. May he come, Lord. Prepare the hearts and minds of your people to receive him. And suddenly, there's an angel. The angel appears, the angel told Zechariah that a forerunner is coming who is going to prepare God's people for Messiah. In other words, the angel is saying, God is answering your prayer, Zechariah. What's more, don't miss this. He's going to use you in answer to your prayer. God is going to bring the forerunner through you, Zechariah. And it's happening now. The age of Messiah has come at last. This is often the case when God answers prayer. I think of Old Testament saints praying for God to deliver them from their enemies. And then they take up swords and they go into battle and God uses them to accomplish their deliverance and the answer to their own prayers. Today, some of you are praying for your children, if you have children. God may very well use you to be a part of the answer to your prayers. But there's more, and let's not miss this. Don't miss this. Zechariah's ritual prayer for the coming of the Messiah is being answered. Praise the Lord. But so is his very personal prayer, his deepest heart cry. The great burden of his life is going to be lifted. Elizabeth is going to have a son. Think about that. Zechariah is an old man. I doubt he's verbalized that prayer for years, right? He's not in the temple praying for God to give him a son. He gave up that prayer a long time ago. All that's left is the ember of hopelessness and hurt and the burden. He'd long stopped praying for children. He'd given up that slim hope. But here's God offering an audacious, boldly inventive, extremely daring answer. Your wife is going to have a son, Zechariah. I can't help... But think of Paul's words. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That's how audacious he is. So traveling point number two, our God answers prayer. Perhaps you didn't hear me. Our God answers prayer. You still may not have heard me because that was a sleepy answer. This stuff really happened, and our God answers prayer. Okay, that's a little better, but not good enough. Our God answers prayer. Okay, you're getting there. Point number three, traveling point number three, God expects to be believed. So, the angel on the right side, and I don't know if that was, I guess that's Zechariah's right because at that point, there's no absolute right. So he's standing in the holy place, and on the right side of the altar, the angel appears. And I imagine in his most, I don't know, epic, Gabriel-like voice, or maybe he's really chill. Hey, Zachariah, don't stress out. Seriously, it's okay. I know I just suddenly appeared here, and you haven't ever seen anything exactly like me. Don't be afraid. This is who I am and I've got some really, really good news for you. Your prayer is answered. God is going to give you a son. And Zechariah, he's going to be extraordinary. He's going to be a Nazarite. And he's going to be a blessing to people. And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And the angel is expecting Zechariah to fall on his knees and say, hallelujah, are you kidding me? Can I hug you? I don't know what kind of being you are, but can I hug you? And instead, Zechariah says, well, how do I know? And the angel's response is something akin to, what am I, chopped liver? I'm Gabriel. I came from God most high. I came to give you extraordinarily good news Good news that you're supposed to celebrate, and instead you doubt. So you're not going to be able to say a word until he's born. And you're a talker, Zechariah. Your mouth is going to be completely shut. Throughout his ministry, Jesus reminded his followers of the essentiality, of the unavoidability, of the, the, the absolute importance of faith. Your faith has allowed this, Jesus said over and over again, knowing that what had just happened was really a reflection of God's power, but also knowing that the release of God's power always awaits a coupling with faith. God will not move otherwise. In fact, Mark records for us a really fascinating incident when Jesus, he's already been traveling, he's already out, he's already doing ministry, he's already done some incredibly profound things, he goes back to his hometown. And Mark records that Jesus could not perform any miracles there because of their lack of faith. Point number three, God expects to be believed then and now. God waits to move on our behalf to see that that movement is coupled, called down by faith. God expects to be believed. This stuff really happened. We can believe it. God answers prayer. And in that process, God expects to be believed. All right, let's wrap this up. What do we do with this? This is real simple. We pray believing So let me spend a couple of minutes drilling down on that, if I can, for us. Let's talk personally first, and then we'll talk corporately here at Gateway. Personally, I think this is a call for us. Please don't snooze on today. This is a call for you and I to rededicate ourselves to prayer, believing that God will answer. From the very first of Luke's biography of Jesus, this is a whisper into my spirit and yours saying, pray, just pray. Just pray and believe. God will do incredible things. Now, if you are a Christ follower, then you're probably like me. It's easy to make us feel guilty about prayer. Why don't you spend as much time in prayer as you do worrying? Why don't you spend as much time in prayer as you do watching TV? Why don't you spend as much time praying as you do planning and talking? But let's not fall prey to feeling guilty about prayer. Let's not fall prey to feeling guilty about prayer. You might have missed that, but let's not feel guilty. Let's just pray. Let's decide we're going to pray. We're going to do better this week. We've said before, and we'll say it many more times, spiritual growth looks like the next step. It doesn't look like becoming Mother Teresa. Spiritual growth looks like the next step. So figure out for yourself what the next step in being more diligent in prayer is, and take that step. I knew I was going to do this lesson and I was reviewing one of my favorite books on prayer. It's called Prayer and it's written in 1931 by an old uh, Norwegian Lutheran scholar named Ole Halsby. Halsby says, this is awesome, he begins by laying out the essential conditions for prayer. He says there are two essential conditions for prayer, helplessness and faith. He doesn't mention profundity He doesn't mention expertise, helplessness, and faith. Y'all, we can do that. If we bring just a little bit of faith, we can be helpless. So the conditions for praying rightly and effectively are helplessness and just helplessness and faith. I want to encourage you to create some disciplines for yourself and find some accountability to help you Take the next step in prayer. Maybe it's turning off the radio on your way to work and, you know, not sort of praying, but really pray. Dial in to that time. Maybe it's 10 minutes in the morning before you leave or before you go to bed at night. It's 15 minutes. You spend five minutes surveying your day and just saying, thank you, God. Not creating your to-do list, but thank you, God. And then you spend five minutes telling him how awesome he is and how many things you're thankful for. And then you spend five minutes taking to him all of your needs and ours. Just create some discipline for yourself that will help you take the next step in prayer. We're coming up to a new year. Great time to start a new habit. Start a prayer habit. Take it to the next level. Take the next step in prayer personally. But now let me say a word for us corporately. I'm going to ask you to engage with me, if you would, in a couple of specific and I hope exciting, corporate gateway prayer exercises. And I'm going to do so because we are right now, those of you who have been around for a while have already heard some of this, but we are facing the most audacious, wrong application, epic challenge that we have faced in our history. So God has been so good to us. If you're visiting with us today, thanks so much for coming. We're really we're excited to have you. And if you've been coming for four or five weeks. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And we hope you'll dive in and get even more involved with us. We think this is an extraordinary time in the life of our church. We're building a facility kind of across the street. So if you go out to Gum Spring Road, go out toward 50, that new construction, that building over on your right on the south side, as you go out to 50, Uh, That's a new facility that God has allowed us to to build. That's not just spiritual language. God allowed us to build that facility. Let me give you the two-minute version of how we ended up with that property, and then I want to tell you where we are right now and what our challenge is and how we're going to pray about it over the next couple of months. So Diane and I first moved here to northern Virginia. Before living here, my wife Diane and I had lived in Boston, Massachusetts for a number of years, and where we became huge New England Patriot fans. And we moved here a number of years ago when our children were little in uh, 1874 and set up residence. And then in 1997, so almost exactly 20 years ago, a Northern Virginia developer called me up. And he had found a dramatically undervalued piece of property. He was a pretty new Christian, and he went out walking on the property. And for the first time in his life, he heard God speak to him, and God said he's going to try to build a strip mall and multi-use facilities on this property. And he felt like God said to him, I want to raise up a church for this area and put it on that property. So he started looking for a church, and he contacted several pastors all over northern Virginia. And those of you who were here during those years, you will remember. Do you remember those years? Northern Virginia still is, but Northern Virginia was exploding. We were the fastest growing area in the country for like seven out of nine years. We bounced back and forth with a suburban area outside of Atlanta and a suburban area outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Just explosive growth around here. And everybody, every denomination, every religious group and every. Lots of churches, lots of individual people were coming to Northern Virginia to start churches during that period. If you were here and you were even noticing at the time, you got brochures all the time about churches that were starting in local schools. In fact, every single school, that's not hyperbole, every single school in Fairfax County for a few years and in eastern Loudoun County, every single elementary, middle, and high school had a church in it. So churches were starting everywhere, and we were another one of those churches that was starting up at the time. And this developer was calling up churches, I'd like to sell you a piece of property. And over and over again, they told him no. So somewhere along the way, he heard my name, he called me up, we met, drove to this restaurant in Tyson's, he drives up in a jag, I had no idea why we were meeting. I thought, this is awesome, a really rich guy has heard how cool I am, and he wants to get involved with us. So we go in and we sit down for lunch, and I am really confused because he opens up his computer and he's got maps of Loudoun County, and I can't figure out why we need that to talk about how awesome I am. And it took me 15 minutes to realize that he was trying to sell me a piece of property. Rob showers those of you who know Rob, Rob and his wife Evie. Rob has been a longtime friend, one of my best friends for years and years. At this point in the life of our church, it's pretty much Diane and I are three kids, We didn't even know if we had Rob. We did, but I thought, you know, Rob knows what he's doing. He's smart enough not to join this thing. So at this point, he's got a boatload of acreage out here, 32 acres. This is like six acres a person. We don't need it. You know, he makes this really big pitch and tells me, we've got this piece of property. It's going to be awesome, and this is key. I've used this many times with you guys. He says, you don't understand this is going to be on the corner of Center and Main Street, Loudoun County, in 20 years. In 30 years, this is going to be the corner of Center and Main Street, Northern Virginia. You want this. And so being the godly man of vision that I am, I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm here, and I gave him the spiritual answer. I'm here to build a church, not a building. Because the church isn't a building, church is us. I've said before, if you go to lunch with somebody after this service, it's a church meeting. When you sit down, I want you to say, I call this meeting to order. And then when you start laughing, that's the most important business of the week. When somebody prays over the food, that's awesome stuff. That's God's stuff. Anyway, this is the church right here. So we're here to do this. We're not here to build a building. So he being the profound man of God that he is, says, you're an idiot. (laughs) And our lunch ended, and we said no to one another. He would later hear about a foundation that is associated with the denomination that we're affiliated with and a local association of churches called North Star, which is an awesome group that we're affiliated with. Katie Harding, if you haven't met her, she's on staff with North Star, and she and her husband Mike have been coming to our church for a while. Sorry, sold you out, Katie and Mike. And they 're terrific, so heard about this foundation that 's kind of loosely affiliated with the group of churches that we 're associated with, and there's an, a board that operates 20 million dollars that they loan to churches to expand their buildings. And so he goes and makes a presentation to this board i 've got this piece of property. And I want it bought for a church in Northern Virginia. And they tell him, no, we don't do that. We loan money to churches, we don't buy land speculatively. And he gives them the hard sell. He's from Northern Virginia. And he says, if you don't do this, churches in Northern Virginia will never be able to afford what they need. Property prices are exploding. It's not possible for churches to do this. You have to do this to release the research, blah, blah, blah. So they say, okay, if we're going to do this, we want to meet the person. Well, he doesn't have a person. So he comes back to Northern Virginia, he calls me up and he says, would you put a tie on and go down to Richmond with me, and the next time this board meets, would you tell them to buy this property for us? So I say, okay. So I put a tie on, I go down with him. I'm scared to death because I think this is gonna be lawyers like Rob, and developers like Jan, and real estate people, and I'm completely intimidated, and I walk in and this board that manages $20 million is my grandmother, and school teachers and farmers from Southeastern Virginia. And they don't speak this developer's language. That's no longer true. The board now has bankers and lawyers and realtors. (laughs) on (laughs) But I go meet with this board and I stand up in front of them and I know I'm with my people when a man in the back says, well, why are you here, son? That's how old they were. And I said, well, I believe God's called me to Northern Virginia to start a church up there. Lord knows they need churches so they asked me a few more questions and then one woman says, if you were us, what would you do? And I said, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> at which point, the developers in the back of the room going, ah. <laughs> so they dismiss us, bring us in five minutes later and say, we're going to buy this property for you. And we'll hold it for five years in your name. If you don't want it, then five years from now, we'll sell it at market price. But if you want it, let us know. Five years later, We called them up and we said, we want it. So they sold us 32 acres for $600,000. We got the best deal since God gave Israel the promised land. That property is worth a little more than that today. Because God wanted to raise up a church for this area and put it on that property. So now... So now... He has, through us, through Jan Zacharias, thank you, Jan, through Anu Simpkinson, thank you, Anu, He has secured a loan, and we're building. I went out this past week, and I, I signed the last piece of structural steel. So I hope you saw that picture on Facebook. If you didn't, don't look it up. It's a terrible picture. The building is on the way. But just like the people who built your home don't furnish your home for you, (laughs) we have to furnish our home. So we've got the building going now, but we got to put stuff in it. And when we open the doors on that first day, we want to put our best foot forward. And putting our best foot forward, you guys, means that when they walk into our lobby and cafe, which is going to be awesome, we want them to go, wow. And if they know Jesus, we want them to go, wow, God is good. (laughs) This is a little group of people to do this. Secondly, if we're going to put our best foot forward, then we have decided we need to open a weekday children's ministry, a program that's going to reach more than 200 children in preschool, half day kindergarten for the parents who need the other half day. And after school care. And that business has to be started. When you add all of that together, you guys, when you add the the bottom line dollar amount that we're gonna need to move into this building and put our best foot forward, by the way, putting our best foot forward also means we're building a gymnasium that we're gonna let kids use all week long with our posters on the wall. We're gonna serve our area. But on Sunday morning, that's going to be the space that we worship. And I don't know how many of you have ever gone into a gymnasium and had a public event, but it sounds terrible. Four square cement walls. We've got to turn that into something that looks like our space on Sunday morning, and we've got to turn it into something that sounds like our space on Sunday morning. We want to be able to hear what's said, we don't want it to echo and bounce around, and that's not cheap. And we don't want speakers like this. When we get in there on our Sunday morning, we want to put our best foot forward. So in order to do all of that, in order to provide for the security that we need, in order to provide for the startup of this business, in order to build a playground, in order to buy the equipment that we need, we need a million dollars. And we're not going to get a million dollars by planning. We're going to get a million dollars by praying. And somebody may come to us and say, you know what? I've got a brand new bus that I can't use. Would you like it? And you're thinking, that's ridiculous. That kind of thing never happens. Well, we could say the same thing about an angel appearing at the right side of an altar, saying, I'm going to answer your prayer, I'm going to use you to answer everybody's prayer. Or we may have some really rich friend of yours come here to church one day and say, This is so awesome. I'm going to stroke a check for a half a million dollars or maybe one of you is going to get a bonus this Christmas and you're going to stroke a check for $100,000. And God will use you to answer our prayer. So corporately, we're going to pray. And I'm going to give you two prayer exercises then we're going to end. First, we're going to engage ourselves in a day of prayer on New Year's Eve day. So we're going to spend 24 hours in prayer. You'll be hearing more about this over the next few weeks. We'll talk about it here on Sunday morning, and we'll also line it up for you on Facebook and others, emails. What I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to commit, all of us, I'd like for you to commit to pray for an hour sometime on New Year's Eve day. And we'll give you some help in how to spend the hour in prayer but I want you focused on, along with your needs, along with God's glory, I want you focused on, God, we have this epic challenge in front of us. It seems incredibly daunting, but we know that you are audacious. And we know you answer prayer. And we pray that you will deliver. So that's our prayer. We're going to pray 24 hours on New Year's Day Eve day, and we're going to accomplish that by each of us signing up for an hour to pray. I remember we did this many years ago for another thing. And I decided that I would take the 2 o'clock to 3 in the morning hour. And so from 2 to 3, I was going to pray. I set my alarm. My alarm goes off. And the person who prayed in front of me called me. And I think it was John Elliott. I've asked John this, and he can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was John Elliott. And this is one of the, honestly, this is one of the coolest calls I've ever gotten. The phone rang. I picked the phone up. John said, you're on. Awesome. So, somebody else take the two to three hour this year if you would. But (laughs) we're going to pray for 24 hours. And we're going to pray that God will move. Secondly, during the month of January, I'm going to talk again about prayer in January. One week. And I'll I'll spend more time just talking about the mechanics of prayer. But beginning that Sunday, you'll hear more about this. But beginning that Sunday, I want us to spend a month... Praying one minute at one o'clock for one million dollars every day. And we'll figure out ways to ping you and remind you, but we're going to pray that God will move. You can give one minute. Even if you're in a meeting, you can give one. I'm sorry, i got to go to the bathroom. We're going to pray one minute at one o'clock for one million dollars every day, all of us, united, together, praying. And God's going to move. Okay, this stuff really happened. God answers prayer, and God expects to be believed, and all God's people said, Father thank you so much for your mercy, thank you for your grace to us, thank you for Jesus, and this morning we stand amazed at what you've done and what you're going to do. Lord, today we lift up our needs. You know what they are you know our deepest heart cry. So what we do is we bring our hopelessness and our faith to you this morning. And we say, come Lord Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. And all God's people said. Stand with me if you would. And let's sing one more hymn.